0: Give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group that went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us through the ages and allowing us to have it this morning read here in a a language that we understand. And Father, we come to you now and ask that you would grant to us spiritual understanding. Give us ears of faith. Oh, give us hearts of faith. Lord, lead us to be thankful for the wondrous mystery the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, the eternal son of God who took on flesh for us. Father, be with your people during the preaching of the word today. Comfort and establish their hearts and help me, your servant, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are our rock and our redeemer. And we ask all these things, In the name of Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Amen. Milestones are important. Milestones are important, especially in the life of children. The first picture you take of your child, first solid foods, first words, first steps, first bike ride. First day of school, first lost tooth, first home run. There are so many firsts, aren't there? So many firsts, so many milestones, milestones like we witnessed today, baptism, so many others. How do we capture such milestones? How do we capture them? How do we preserve them? They're precious memories, right? How do we preserve them? Pictures, videos, scrapbooks, lots of scrapbooks, memories, things that we just remember, memory boxes, growth charts. We're like conservators, aren't we? We do all we can to curate this special collection of these milestones, milestones to both treasure and milestones to bring out on special occasions for remembrance, and of course, embarrassment, right? I mean, come on, how many of you have not had something brought up from your childhood and been embarrassed by it? Well, our investigative journalist, Luke, remember the one who's the author of this gospel, he actually presents us with a carefully curated milestone in the life of Jesus right here in verses 40 through 52. A milestone so important that it captures the entirety of our biblical record of Jesus's life from his earliest years through his adolescence into his adulthood. Sure, Matthew does record for us both the visit of the Magi and the flight to Egypt that the family took during Herod's infanticide. That likely happened before age two. But from that time until we meet Jesus, the adult Jesus, in each of the gospel narratives, this is the one and only recorded milestone in the life of Jesus. Now, many have undertaken to write some down. If you know anything about those other gospels, they're neither gospels nor are they true. Uh, one in particular, the infancy gospel of Thomas is not a gospel and it wasn't written by Thomas. Uh, Thomas would have been long gone by the time this book was written. It comes up with all these fairy tales about Jesus's life. Maybe you've heard the one where he was outside by himself playing in the dirt and he was lonely. And so this Narrative says that Jesus takes the clay and he makes two birds out of it. And he decides to make the birds come to life so that he'll have pets and he won't be lonely anymore. Perhaps you've heard stories like these. Well, none of those are inspired scripture. They're not those things that God has given to us here in his holy inspired and errant word that teach us truths about the life of Christ. But here we have some, we have one. We have this milestone that Luke is recalling for us. I would say we should pay attention. I would say that it's important. So important, did you notice? That it gives to us the very first words ever recorded by our savior. Not his first words, but the first words recorded by our savior. Words that remind us of who he is and what he came to do. So, to help us study and understand this passage together this morning, I want us to consider it, not surprisingly, in three parts. First, I want us to look at the background of the narrative, the background. Second, we'll look at the bookends of the narrative, the bookends. And third, we'll look at the business of the narrative. The business. These three points the background, the bookends, the business should prove to be helpful guideposts on our journey through this passage today. So let's begin with the first the background. Thus far, as you know, Luke has taken extraordinary care in presenting Joseph and Mary as godly parents, godly parents who are committed to raise. Jesus according to the law, to raise him in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Last week, we saw how they were faithful to have Jesus circumcised on the eighth day and how they were faithful to present him at the temple for his consecration as the firstborn. We witnessed how Jesus, the, the Son of God, the one who was born of woman, born under the law, the one who came to fulfill the law for us. We saw how the infant Jesus was being carried along by the faithful devotion and obedience of his parents. Joseph and Mary were indeed godly parents. Luke continues this theme here in our passage as well. Look at verse 41. He tells us that his parents, quote, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. For context's sake, it was only required that the men go up to Jerusalem. But the inclusion of Mary here shows what was common of the most godly and faithful families in Israel during that day. The whole family went. Everybody went, husband, wife, children, children. Everyone in the household went. Verse 42 notes that when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Now, lest we think this is redundant, it's not. You see, it was indeed custom for 12 year old boys in particular to go to Jerusalem for the Passover with their fathers. If they hadn't went during any other year this was most certainly the year that they did it. When you were 12, you went with your father. It was during this year that the boy would learn all the rituals, the intricate details of the sacrifice, the details of the feast, the details of the prayers and the psalms that were sung. This was all to be done before he turned 13, when he would then, at age 13, be considered a full member of, of the synagogue, when he would be, as Jews say today, Bar Mitzvah, a son of the law, a man. So Luke notes that this particular year was according to custom because this was the year that Jesus was preparing to become a man. But this was also the year of the famous mix-up, when Jesus was left behind in Jerusalem, or more poignantly when he decided to stay behind. Now, I want to make something clear here. Joseph and Mary are not negligent parents. They are not. It was a different time than our own. Believe it or not, they, their kids didn't have GPS devices to track their every movement. Things were a lot different. Beyond that, it was common for families, friends, people from towns such as Nazareth like this to travel together in large caravans. They would take these journeys in large caravans. And in these caravans, the the women and children would typically uh, go in front of the caravan. They would travel ahead of the men. The men would stay in the back. For a 12-year-old child, such as Jesus, a young boy on the cusp of manhood, he could have been with either group. You can imagine this if you know anything about 12-year-olds, They've got one foot in childhood and the other foot in adulthood, right? Shouldn't be a surprise to us. So it's likely that when they left, Joseph just assumed that he was with Mary. And Mary assumed that he was with Joseph. Certainly Joseph and Mary aren't the first, nor will they be the last couple to ever miscommunicate in such a way. Has that ever happened to you? I thought you were picking them up from practice. I thought you were picking them up. I wanna make another comment that I think would be helpful for you about verse 46, when Luke says three days. We need to understand that Jews considered days inclusively. Okay, so think about this. They set out on the journey of day one. They realized at night when the group came together that Jesus was not with them. So thus they journeyed back to Jerusalem on day two and then they found him on day three. That's what we call inclusive time. It's the same with the resurrection of Jesus, right? We say he rose again from the dead on the third day. And you're like, but he died on Friday. How did he rise on Sunday? Well, Friday's day one, Saturday's day two, Sunday's day three. On the third day, this is the inclusive accounting of time. It's the same way here. So they journey out a day, they find out he's not there. They come back a day and then they spend a day looking for him. It still doesn't help the kind of elephant in the room, right? (laughs) Can you imagine the panic that would have filled them? I mean, have you ever lost sight of your child or a child in your care? Have you ever lost sight of them? Have you ever had that moment? If you have, you know what I'm talking about. You're like, where are they? I can't find them. You start yelling their name. Some of us become uncontrolled, right? We start yelling our kid's name, looking everywhere for them. Panic sets in. I cannot even fathom what they must have thought especially considering who this son is. It had been revealed to them that he was the Messiah. They lost the Messiah. (laughs) They lost Jesus. Where was he? It's understandable then that when they find him, this is what they say. Look again at verse 48. Son, why have you treated us so Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. I love how Mary even got in that classic mom flex. Your father and I. (laughs) Your father and I have been searching for, for you. They've been in great distress. But their distress will soon turn into wonder. But before we get to that wonder, I'd like for us to look carefully at the verses that surround this account. Verses I read earlier, 40 and 52. These verses compose the second guidepost on our journey this morning. They are the bookends. I want us to look at them again together. Verse 40, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom in the favor of God, was upon him and then verse 52 and jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with god and man these two verses testify to the physical intellectual emotional and relational development of jesus the son of god together they highlight for us this wondrous mystery of the incarnation that the eternal Son of God would leave the glories of heaven and take on flesh and possess in one body both full humanity and full deity. With these two distinct natures, humanity and deity, being as the great confessions of the faith tell us, neither mixed, confused, separated, or divided. Jesus is both fully human and fully divine, period. These two verses remind us of that, that though he is indeed God, he is indeed man. It's probably easiest for us to understand his physical development. When he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, he took on a human body. He was born as a baby, a real baby, with all the physical needs that any baby has. As a baby, he woke up in the middle of the night hungry. As a baby, he needed to be nursed, he needed to be burped, and he needed to be changed. That's not irreverent, it's truth. He was a human baby. We also know that when he was an adult, he suffered all the limitations of humanity, of physical existence. He grew tired and hungry, did he not? He needed to eat and sleep. He even cried. And most importantly, as we were just assured from in 1 Peter 2, 24, it was his real body. His real body that he offered on the cross for our sins. It was flesh just like ours that was broken open and bloodied. And so what happened between the manger and And the cross is that, as Luke says, Jesus grew and became strong, and he increased in stature. He grew up physically. He grew up. He became a man. But he also grew up intellectually and relationally as well. Some mistakenly believe that Jesus was born with the mind of God in the body of a human. But that's mixing and confusing. Confusing. The great confessions tell us we can't do. That's not the case. This is exactly what Luke is pointing out by saying that Jesus was filled with wisdom, by saying that Jesus increased. And wisdom, he had a physical human mind that needed to develop too. His humanity was a full humanity, including reasons and emotions. As Don McLeod helpfully says, he was born with the mental equipment of a normal child. He experienced the usual stimuli and went through the ordinary processes of intellectual development, just like every other child. Well, almost. I know what you're thinking. I'm getting there, don't worry. The critical difference is that Jesus did all of this growing up without sin. His development was unhindered by depravity. That's something we can't imagine. We just can't. He was not like us, born in Adam. His humanity was unstained by sin. So he was free to develop freely from sin. Now, truth like this blows our minds, right? It staggers our minds. I think part of the reason it does, and why I'm glad this is included for us, is because we often take the incarnation for granted. We often just take it for granted. But I believe that we take it for granted because we have not truly wrestled with its full implications, We barely have time to dip our toes into its wondrous mystery even this morning. But brothers and sisters, please don't miss the infinite condescension that it was for the eternal son of God to become man, to become man with all those limitations of humanity, all limitations except for sin, of course. He did this for us. He took on flesh for us, so that he would suffer for sin in our place upon the cross. And for that, we should be thankful. For we truly have a great high priest, as the author of Hebrews says, who can sympathize with our weakness. We have a Savior who understands what it is like to go through all of the growing pains of life. Have you ever thought about it that way? That's why this passage. Is here for us. We'll talk a lot about his deity as we go through the gospel of his life. We'll see the miracles he performed, the knowledge he did have given to him by God. We'll see all of that, but let us not forget or take for granted the wondrous mystery of his incarnation. I thought a lot about that now infamous advertisement that ran during the Super Bowl. If you've paid attention to sports at all, it's been running through baseball and other places already, but it's the one that spoke of Jesus with those words, he gets us. Praise God. (laughs) He gets us. (laughs) He knows us. That's certainly true. That's certainly a, a point that Luke is aiming to make, but I think the bigger issue at stake in our text I would say in our lives, in your life and mine, is do we get Jesus? You see, he gets us, but do we get him? Do we really understand him? This brings us now to the third and the final guidepost on our journey, what I call the business of this narrative. That wonder I spoke of earlier, the the wonder of Jesus's intellectual development, which again, developing intellectually apart from sin, you can only imagine, right? Well, we get a picture of it. It's on full display, right where Joseph and Mary find him, in the temple. You see, it was customary following the Passover for the priests to remain behind and spend time discussing and debating theology. It's like the biggest week of the year, right? Everybody leaves and you'd think these guys would sit back and relax, but hey, they do what every theologian has done ever since, myself included. We sit back and talk about more theology. They sit back, they talk, and they debate theology. This time though, it's different. This time they're joined by a poor 12-year-old boy from of all places, Nazareth. According to verse 36, 46, excuse me, He was sitting among the teachers. It would have been common to sit on the sidelines, right? Some of you actually enjoy listening to people talk about theology, I know, because you tell me what you listen to on your podcast and what you read. It's one thing to sit on the sidelines and listen, but Jesus is sitting among them. I can't even fathom what this looked like in the day. They and all their vestments and robes, all dressed to the T according to what their stature was, and yet here's this poor 12 year old boy from Nazareth sitting in the middle, taking him to school. It says that he was listening to them and asking questions. This was common. Well, what do you think about this? Blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, what do you think about that? Blah, blah, blah. You know, think Charlie Brown, right? The teacher. But beyond being just one of the questioners, verse 47, I don't know if you caught it. It indicates that he was being questioned as well. You ever met that kind of person that they ask such good questions, you know what they know. And you all of a sudden you have this turn, you're like, okay, maybe you're the expert. <laughs> Let me, did I get that right? Let me ask that. Jesus has an audience. And it says, look, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. As amazing as that is, and it is amazing. I believe that the true wonder of this passage is found in the words that he utters to his parents. In verse 49, this is the milestone that Luke wants us to know. Look again at verse 49. Jesus says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? In all the long biblical record, not even Moses who built the tabernacle, not David who had longed to build the temple, nor Solomon who had actually built it, no prophet, no priest, nor king, nor commoner, not the most exalted of them had ever referred to the tabernacle or the temple as, quote, my father's house. That would have stopped the room. That would have stopped the room. In these words, Jesus shows that even now at the age of 12, when this isn't surprising to us, He has a consciousness of a relationship with God the Father that none has ever conceived of, let alone ever expressed. And with that relationship comes an astounding and compelling devotion. Look what he says. I must be in my Father's house. Not I need to be, not I want to be, but I must be in my Father's house. Even at the adolescent age of 12, Jesus knew who he was. This proves it. He had complete confidence that he was the son of God. Already he was speaking to God the way he would always speak of him and to him when he was a man. It's the way he even taught us to speak to him, to call him our father who art in heaven. This shows that when Jesus was there at the temple, he was right where he was supposed to be. He was, and this is actually another way to interpret the language used here. Some of you have a footnote to this case. In his father's house literally means in his father's business. He's in his father's business. He was doing the work of his father in his father's house. He was teaching the word of God. And it is certainly fitting that the only words we have recorded from him in these early years are a picture of his perfect submission and his perfect obedience to his father's word and will. Even when he's confronted by his parents, what does he do? He goes back with them and he submits to them because he keeps the commandments perfectly. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And so he's honoring his heavenly father, but he doesn't neglect to honor his earthly mother and father as well. This shows that Jesus perfectly submits. He perfectly obeys, and it will be this perfect submission and obedience that will one day lead him to do his father's business, not in the temple, but at the cross. You see, all that work which had been done in the temple in this father's house by priests through all the years to atone for the sins of the people were but a type and a shadow of the offering that Jesus would offer on the cross. For by giving his very life, there he would finally and fully satisfy the wrath of God against sin and, and bring complete forgiveness and lasting reconciliation between God and his people. It's no wonder That is verse 50 says, his parents did not understand the saying he spoke to them. They didn't get it. But I love this. Mary did what all godly parents are called to do. Mary treasured up these things in her heart. She chewed on them, we might say. She let them roll around up there. She thought about it. She carefully curated this milestone preserving it, passing it along, and most believe that she told Luke herself when he interviewed her, passed it on so that it could be given to us. So that was God's will and plan as he worked through the human authors to preserve this for us. If you remember last week, Simeon spoke of a sword that would pierce Mary's soul. In this moment, that sword, the shadow of the cross that he alluded to is now cast upon her and it's gonna reveal itself more and more and more in her life. But now, now speaking in Luke's day as he's writing this, on that side, or we should say this side of the cross, she did fully understand it and we're thankful that God gave it to us for we see clearly that Jesus indeed must be about his father's business. So these three guideposts, the background, the bookends, and the business of this narrative, these guideposts were meant to help us. They're meant to to shine a light on who Jesus is and what he came to do. Jesus is the eternal son of God who became man for us to do his father's business and bring us safely with him one day into his house. You know, a text like this and a sermon like this, it's really hard to be specific in application. It's really hard. So much of us, depending on the tradition we come from or where we might attend church, we're conditioned to think that application is only action oriented. In other words, what must I do in response? Well, that part of today's application is easy. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There is no other name under heaven give it to men by which they can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today's the first day you've ever heard about Jesus. If you've heard about Jesus, but you've never put your faith and trust in him, I pray that he would change your heart, grant you faith this day, and today would be a day of salvation for you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But application goes beyond the action step. It's about how we are to think and how we're to feel. I had a professor in seminary and his uncanny accent would say, think, feel, do, think, feel, do. Don't talk to me about a passage. You can tell me how it makes you think, how it makes you feel and what it makes you do. Yes, sir. So I'll honor Dr. Kara this morning. Perhaps you have realized that you need to grow in your own wisdom and understanding of the Christian faith. Perhaps concepts like the incarnation are foreign to you or even unsettled to you. And listen, if you've studied church history, you know that this is one of those lines that's drawn that says you're a heretic or you're orthodox. This is one of those lines. Perhaps you don't even understand that. Perhaps God is calling you today to think about that. Talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. I'll put them on the spot, right? Talk to the godly men and women that you know. We'll point you to resources. We'll talk with you about it. The incarnation is an important truth of the Christian faith and one that we must hold to. As far as how we are to feel, I actually think that one's pretty easy too. Thankfulness. We should feel a deep thankfulness for God's plan for our salvation. How can we not be thankful for the wondrous mystery of our faith. How can we not sing as we just did moments ago, these words, and in our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended. He took on flesh to ransom us. We should be thankful for what Christ did for us and for our salvation. Thankful for the gift of salvation and the gift of faith in him, faith that saves us and faith that perseveres us to the very end so i encourage you join with me today and be thankful amen and amen would you take your